This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Sean Korn. She teaches yoga and is co-founder of Off the Mat, Into the World. I spoke with her on August 20th, 2008, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios of NPR West in Culver City, California. Download the MP3 of our produced show with Sean Korn at onbeing.org. These are your headphones. Perfect. They have a left and the right side, and they uh, correspond with these knobs on the left and the right side. So if I need to, if I need to hear more or less, mm-hmm. okay. Yep, that's it. And then don't worry about the buttons. Engineer is Patrick. Yes, Patrick, and he's going to talk to you. Make sure that you sound good. Great. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Hi, Sean. Hi. Hi, is this Krista. Yes, it is. How are you doing? I'm <laughs> good. Um, are you? Have you been rushing around to get here? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, okay. a little bit. You know, right. I just got back from Vietnam, so it's a, uh, you know, everything's a little delayed right now. Yeah. Well, it's where am I speaking? Where are you? Where am I speaking to you? Right I'm now? in Minnesota. I'm in St. Oh, Paul. You are. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and you uh, you probably know that Matthew Sanford is the one who first uh, put me onto you, and since then I, I'm kind of a. I've become a convert to yoga this past year, so I've heard your name since then, of course. <laughs> Who are you taking yoga with? Uh, I'm doing classes at Core Power here, mm-hmm. which has a bunch of studios. And actually, there are many teachers. Um, I was reading one of the bios of a teacher I, I had not taken before the other day who said that, who cited you as one of her teachers. So I'm sure, oh, really? I'm sure you know people, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I know a great school out there, the Minneapolis uh, Center of Yoga. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Gray owns the place, yeah. and she's wonderful, but uh, she, because she runs it, she might be able to help you find the teacher that would work best for you. Yeah. Well, this studio really works for me because there's so many classes, and there are a few different locations, and I'm able to to practice even though I can, you know, rarely practice um <laughs> From one week to the next, at the same times on the same you know same days of the week. So anyway, it's been. Did you great. ever get to take? Did you get to take my, Matthew's class at all? No, but I he's kind of on the other side of the cities. But I really um, want to get over there. He teaches a class on Monday mornings, which is a hard time. But I'm just going to take yeah. off some Monday morning and head over there. One you of should. one of my teacher. teachers, one of my teachers who teaches hot yoga, is um, takes his classes and gets a lot from him so that's where i would take his class if i was in minneapolis yeah, yeah. he's so cool he yeah, really is i know he's amazing you can hear me okay right yeah i can um all right mitch good. how do you think we're doing should we just go okay let's just go um <laughs> i'm tired it's the end of a day today and i'm getting ready to travel so i'm gonna draw you are, some you energy from to? you i'm going to mississippi not vietnam but kind of <laughs> far away <laughs> Still another world. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard our program at all? Or do you have any no, questions of me? Okay. Well, no, Matthew kind of brought me up to speed. Um, how long will we be speaking for? I'm not sure how long the program is. Um, well, we'll it's not, we're not live. Um, we, will, mm-hmm. we will produce it afterwards. We'll speak for about an hour, oh. and, hour and 15, hour and a half. Uh-huh. And uh, is that all right? Does that work? Sure. Okay. Works for me. And then what we'll do is turn that into an hour of radio. And that also means that we get to have a real free-flowing conversation. It doesn't even have to be especially linear if you want to go back to something. um, And we don't have the pressure of it being live. Yeah. No perfection. That's wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so let's just start. And, you know, I okay. interview many different kinds of people. This is not really about religion or spirituality, but about um, how um, different traditions and practices and insights um, resonate in different many parts of life. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I interview... Um, I interview theologians, but and but I and I interview spiritual teachers, but I also interview scientists and uh, you know police officers. <laughs> and That's one great. question that I always ask, um, or just you know want to talk about at the beginning is, I mean, I've, I have been reading other interviews you've given, and it, it sounds like in terms of your um, your upbringing, in terms of religion, you had um, an upbringing, a, a, a situation that's pretty common these days, more common than a few generations ago, um, where you, um, was it one of your parents Jewish and one Catholic and yeah. kind of what, they weren't observant of anything? Um, no. No, my parents were, my mom was a teenager when she had us and my mom was raised in a really strict Jewish household mm-hmm. and my dad was raised uh, um, a Christian, a Catholic actually, but his father was Jewish. Oh. So his background was a little bit more open-minded, but my mother's was not. And when my mom got pregnant, my um, her parents were furious because my father wasn't Jewish. Yeah. And my mother, as a result, decided to rebel and made a decision to raise us with no religion uh, because her upbringing was so strict. So we celebrated every single holiday that provided a gift. <laughs> and um, there was an enormous amount of love, but we had like a Jewish star on top of the Christmas tree. Right. And um, I didn't, I don't think I'd ever been to church or to a temple. None of that was really um, brought into the way that we were brought up. So it, it was interesting. It was good. And I recognize some of the negatives now that I'm a little bit older. The good part of it was my parents allowed us to make our own decisions around religion and spirituality and there was no dogma um, attached so my brothers and I are all very very open-minded mm-hmm. to um, to spirit uh, and in each of our own ways the I would say the negative thing and I've talked about this with my parents is although they did not bring raise us to believe in a patriarchal God the school that I was involved in, the culture that I was raised in, which was pretty blue collar, it was just all over the place that God was an energy that showed up more or less when I did something bad. Right. I think and, that's really interesting. I saw you made that in another that point in another conversation that although you in the absence of any kind of positive um teaching or or mm-hmm. or observance you kind of absorbed cultural dogma about what religion Com- is and who god completely. is completely yeah it's really completely. fascinating and there was nothing to contradict that mm-hmm. and you also from a pretty early age um suffered from an obsessive compulsive disorder right from when i was around 11 Mm-hmm. Did you know that that's was, what it was when you were 11? No, no. The obsessive compulsive disorder, it didn't get, get really acknowledged. Mm-hmm. When I was around 19 is the first time that a doctor had explained to me what it is that I had. Mm-hmm. Before then, I thought it was an interesting quirk. Um, so did my family. And thank God, I thank God that they never shamed me for it. I was obsessed with even numbers, four and eight. And I'd have to... Um, touch things in certain numbers, blink, swallow. If I walked into a wall, I'd have to walk in on the other side. Um, and depending on my anxiety level, the, the, um, of my obsession for balance became greater or less than. 
And it was also very much associated with death. I always felt that if I, if I did things in certain numbers, I can prevent the death or dying of somebody around me that I loved. Is that this common, goes back- an obsessive-compulsive disorder, now, now that you know more about it, that people well, have that I kind work of with- fear of death or consequences? I, I would have to say that OCD is much more common. I, I can spot it a, a mile away. I can watch it in people's body language. Um, it has a lot to do with control, and uh, it's a survival skill of dealing with stress. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it's associated with a superstition um, or with a fear like death is really, I think, dependent upon the individual. But more often than not, people will say that to me, that they feel that they can prevent bad things from happening right. if they do their things in certain patterns or whatever each person's individual um, uh, uh, compulsion is. But for me... It was definitely related to spirit because I wasn't raised with God and because God only showed up in my mind uh, when bad things happened by putting things in order and creating a certain amount of control Hmm. to a world that I thought was chaotic. Um, I was a very intuitive kid. I was aware that there was a lot of chaos in my family, which there would be when your parents are essentially teenagers. And because there was no structure or this sense of spirit or God... I decided to play God. So by keeping my world in order, I can control bad things from happening. Hmm. This wasn't conscious. I, I figured no. this out way later. It was just an interesting little survival skill that a, a kid out of balance created. Um, I'm grateful that I had something and didn't have to necessarily turn to drugs and alcohol to stave off the anxiety. I found something else that did the trick. Yeah, it, I mean, but, it's, it's kind of interesting. Interesting only because you found such healing that... Yoga is, I mean, one element of yoga is about balance. And in fact, you Mm -hmm. had this disordered relationship, this very compulsive, anxious pursuit of balance Mm -hmm. in that disease. Yeah. Well, I didn't know how bad my OCD was until my first yoga class. Really? Because I remember being in my, one of my first downward dogs and I looked at my hands and I noticed that one hand was a fraction of an inch further forward than the other. Yet my shoulders were balanced. And I didn't understand how do I get my hands to match, but then my shoulders would be out of balance. And my heart started to race. Hmm. And I was, for the first time, really critically aware that both sides of the body aren't exactly the same. And the teacher said something in that class that was really life-changing for me. He said, breathe and everything changes. And what that meant for me was that As the anxiety came up, which it was, because I couldn't get my body in the right alignment, Mm -hmm. I just kept breathing deeply, and it was a sensation. Anxiety is a feeling. It's a sensation within the body. The deeper I breathed, the more that started to pass, and it just became something else. And I thought, wow, I wonder if when anxiety shows up in my life, if I can actually do the same thing, if I can just stay present and breathe and trust that it will change, including the fear around death. Hmm. Okay, so tell me, I mean, had you gotten any kind of treatment for for the OCD, or was this also the beginning of of you really taking that seriously as a problem, even as a medical problem? Yeah, it all happened at 19. Uh-huh. I got into yoga at 19, I got into therapy at 19, and I understood uh, OCD at that same age. Um, you know, I, was, I used to live up on a, I lived in New York City, so I was on a, I lived on a walk-up. Yeah, and you left and home at a pretty early age, didn't you? You didn't go to college. 17. And, yeah. Yeah, 17. And uh, I used to have to, I would be sure I locked that door 
but I would have to go up the stairs again and again and again and check the door. And even though I knew the door was locked, I couldn't not keep, I'd come down, go back up again. I think I lived on the fifth floor. Mm. And I knew then it was getting in the way of my life. Right. Like there was, it was making me late for things. And I thought, I think I need to see what this is about because this can't be normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that it's not normal. It's, uh, it's what, it's an interesting tool that a lot of people use. And I the just OCD, chose the obsessive compulsive. Uh, yeah. And people have a lot of different ways. They yeah. do a lot of different things around it. Um, I just didn't want that to be a part of my life. Yoga became, um, I knew that by doing yoga and learning how to breathe and going into therapy were interesting tools that were going to help me deal with stress. But what I needed to learn was how did the stress get there in the first place? Mm-hmm. What was the root of the anxiety? And that's really where the healing was going to occur for me. So you just told me about your first yoga class. And I mean, it sounds like you actually had r- really a pretty immediate breakthrough in the first class. I was going to ask you about the first class and also about the class where you where you understood that this could be transformative. Uh, yeah, that this, didn't happen for years later. It didn't happen mm-hmm. for years later. Um, yeah. Well, tell me about that. I mean, tell me about well, that progression. I'd have to say that my first yoga classes, I, I liked them. Um, I felt great in my body. It uh, I, At that period of my life, at um, I got into yoga at 19. I was doing a lot of drugs at that time. And um, I, I liked drugs a lot. I adapted to it well, mm-hmm. um, especially hallucinogens and things like that. You know, I enjoyed getting high. And I'm very grateful that yoga came into my life because it offered me an alternative way to raise my consciousness Hmm. um, that wasn't introducing drugs into my system. I got high, Hmm. um, but it also helped me to understand that I was actually using drugs as a way to anesthetize or numb myself out or even self-regulate. So I got off of drugs at that period and stopped smoking cigarettes and just became more health conscious in general. And you, is this when you were and, working at the Life Cafe in New yeah, York? And yeah. Yeah. Life Cafe was instrumental because um, uh, the owners of Life uh, ended up opening the Jiva Mukti Yoga Schools, which right, were some which is, of the... Yeah, really one mm-hmm. of the formative uh, leading yoga schools mm-hmm. in the country, I think, where a lot of people train. Now. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I was a waitress there. And right. uh, <laughs> yeah, I was really, really blessed because... They went off to India, the owners, and came back. And I, I really saw a difference in them. They weren't lecturing or preaching or telling us how to live our lives. But I saw a sense of um, of ease that I hadn't noticed mm. before and thought, like, wow, I could use a little of that. Mm. And so I decided just to check it out. And I knew I got into the body part of it, um, not the mind-body. That didn't come until later. Um, but I was very aware of uh, how my body felt out of alignment, the how my heart would race when I couldn't get my body in alignment, um, what happened when the teacher touched me on one part of my body but then not on another. And I also saw that it helped create a sense of ease in my nature mm-hmm. when I would leave the class. I just felt better. But it wasn't until years later where a couple of shifts happened where it moved from the physical into the emotional. And I think that for me and maybe for a lot of other people out there who do, who are doing yoga, that's the real transformative shift because that connects the mind and the body. Um, the first time that yoga had a real impact on me was I was still living in New York 
it was I remember the day it was snowing I was uh I just finished a yoga class and I was walking back to my to my apartment and I had this really weird feeling in my heart in my body and everything and I I stopped because I was trying to identify like what it was that I was feeling and I realized that I was happy and (laughs) it was I mean it sounds it's it was such an odd moment because I was young prior to that class I was confused I didn't know if I should I I was with a guy at the time I didn't know if I should stay with him if I should move to LA you know as any Mm -hmm, young person mm -hmm. I was just in the middle of um, my own little personal drama and basically lived each day thriving on that drama and was pretty miserable Um, (laughs) and I just had this sense that everything was unfolding that that I was in something that was the bigger than I could possibly define and it was just such an odd little moment and I thought to myself what was different what changed and the only thing that was different was the fact that I took this yoga class <laughs> and so the next day I took a yoga class and for the first time I heard the teacher in a very different way like I'm thinking did they ever talk about God before did they ever talk about love like where what? like is this all new was the teacher talking about God and about love yeah Huh. probably said the exact same stuff every single day. Mm-hmm. I was different, not the teacher. I was ready to hear it. The seeds had been planted. It was in my energetic body. It just hadn't awoken. And for whatever reason, that that day, I was ready to receive it. And I got it. And I realized that that's always the gift of yoga. You get exactly what you need at exactly the right time when you're ready to receive it. And I received it. So yeah, I want to I want to kind of get into this knowing that there are going to be people listening who haven't done yoga, you know, or yeah, who sure. maybe have taken some classes, um, just taken some classes, but not gotten to this place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, and I'm going to be a little bit more in this conversation myself than I am in every conversation because over the last nine months, this has become very important to me and uh, you know transformative. But it is a, a progression, and so I wouldn't mm-hmm. have even been able to talk about it or been able to hear what you just said yeah. in the same way six months ago. So I want to try to do this so that we can, you know, pull people in or you know make this sure. accessible to them. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, just you know, also so so I'm reading as I'm getting ready for this interview. I'm reading this Business Week article about how yoga is taking off all over the culture and it's taking their classes at business schools. They're sort of marveling at this. You know, and I think there are a lot of articles now in newspapers and magazines about yoga is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things they say is, this is in the, in the, kind of in the first paragraph to get, get you in, they're saying, wow, there are these yoga classes at law schools, at Harvard, at the University of Chicago, at MIT. They're doing something you wouldn't expect in business school. They're relaxing. And I thought, you know what? That person has no idea what they're doing um, because yeah. that is not a word. Uh, I mean, I, I, but I see how it, it can look very soft and fluffy. And, of course, there is a restorative, relaxing aspect to it. Mm-hmm. But that, does, that word doesn't really do it. <laughs> for, for some, I think, though, I, you know, I like to think that there's, um, there's so many different kinds of yoga yeah. for so many different kinds of personality, and you get what you need at the right time. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of yogas that just you put your legs up the wall, put pretty music on, and chill out. And it serves its purpose for that time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an evolving pro- practice if you commit to it. 
and whatever it looks today, be open to the fact that it might not look that way for the individual in one year or five years from now. Um, I'm not quick to judge at all what someone's yoga practice looks like only because I've seen some of the most unlikely of characters have their lives absolutely transformed. Um, and they had been practicing yoga. Some people might say, oh, they've been doing it wrong. And I think, really? <laughs> because it was perfect for them to move them into a place where they were ready to receive a different amount of information. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes people need to do the six extra push-ups and pour sweat and uh, leave before the resting pose. And I think to myself, fine, just keep it up mm -hmm. because it's a mind-body experience. And when the individual is ready to awaken to it, they will. In the meantime, enjoy your better body. Feel great about the restorative uh, potential. Lose weight if that's what's in your interest, but just keep getting on that mat because the miracle does happen in time if you continue to leave your heart open to it. I mean, let's talk about um, what what happens in yoga. I mean, whether whether it is relaxing or stimulating or, uh, you know, a, a more of a physical experience or more of a mystical experience. Um when you first start taking yoga classes, I mean, again, depending on the kind of class you're taking and the kind of teachers mm -hmm. you have, you hear a lot about what's going on with your breath and your body, with your joints, with energy, mm -hmm. with toxins. I mean, mm -hmm. how do we how do we know? What do we know about what what yoga is doing? You know, really mm, practically uh, on a practical that level, is sure. that is so unusual, that is unique and distinctive. Well, there's two, let's stay on the physical for a moment mm -hmm. in that anytime you're moving, you're increasing the respiration and the circulation within your body. And that has an effect on your lymphatic system. It increases the lymph in your body as much as 15 times. It creates like a vacuum effect. The lympha moving through your body more systematically helps to draw toxins out. And so the toxins are released through your sweat and through your breath. So... And do they measure the, that? Are there people who've measured this? Who I'm sure. Okay. I'm sure. And it's not just with yoga. It's with any form with of exercise. physical activity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so right away, the increase of heat within your body is going to help to um, create greater mobility in the muscles and the joints and in the connective tissue. So just on a physiological level, you detox your body. You increase your flexibility and mobility. You create more space in your, you know, in your muscles and your joints and your bones, and you feel better. And so what makes it unique, though, is by coupling it with deep and rhythmic breathing. It has an influence on the parasympathetic nervous system. It helps to align the mind and the body so that you stay calm and focused. A lot of deep breathing is very accelerated. And that actually increases the adrenaline in your body, which creates more stress. Mm. And so by breathing deeply, you get the physiological benefits, but it calms the nervous system in such a way that it puts you in a meditative state. So it's physically stimulating, but mentally grounding. Mm. So you walk out of a room feeling alive, but in your body and in your center, mm -hmm. not hyper, not depleted. If you feel hyper or depleted, it's probably because you're not breathing correctly. So it becomes a meditation in action that has a very positive influence on your physical body. Again, depending on whether it's a physical practice or a restorative practice, right, both right, are different. Depending on the form. And so <clears throat> for me, I mean, I spend 
my days and my passion thinking about this spiritual aspect of life. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about prayer and meditation. Um, those kinds of spiritual disciplines are important to me. What yoga has helped me do, though, that none of them help me do, because my problem is that um, I'm very cerebral, right? I think mm-hmm. I think everything through. I think like crazy, yeah. and and that's you know that's part of my strength, part of my power. I mean that's that's where you know I'm I have I, I'm good. I have a good mind. I, I like my mind, and I've used it. But what yoga has helped me do, which which is pretty remarkable, is is get out of my head. And, and yeah. you know, for me, just meditating, which I absolutely believe in and I know is transformative for many people, it still keeps me in my head, right? Mm-hmm. And when I, when I do yoga, it, it like, calms that. Um, it, although, mm-hmm. it, although it's kind of ironic because it doesn't make you less mentally present. Mm-hmm. It's just that your body, your mind is grounded, and settled mm-hmm. in your body. I mean, I'm kind of grasping, you know, my experience, but... Right. Well, hopefully, it must mean you're breathing correctly because that is the experience that one has when they are aligning the mind with the body. And that's really the next part of it, too, when you're talking about um, the the benefits of this practice and how it begins to evolve someone mm-hmm. into the next level is um, it comes to this. This is why I'm very non-judgmental about what someone's yoga practice looks like. Um, there's... In the practice of yoga, what we're taught is that there is no separation between the mind and the body. And everything that we're thinking or feeling or experiencing over the course of a lifetime or lifetimes has an effect on your cellular tissue. So your body remembers everything. And even though we have, as human beings, an incredibly a, a, a gorgeous ability to reconcile or to reason, our bodies don't have that same ability to heal unless we're moving through uh, the experiences of our experiences in our life in a spiritual way. So what I'm saying is, if we're holding on to hate, blame, shame, anger, rage, sadness, or grief, something like that, those emotions can be as toxic on our physical body as a poor diet or as inertia, and they manifest as tension, stress, and anxiety. And so our physical body is actually masking the emotional resonance that mm-hmm. lies beneath holding, it. Holding it in somewhere and we're not aware mm-hmm. of it. So we repress it. I know people who've had an experience of um, doing yoga for some time and and having this experience that you describe of just feeling great, you know, feeling mm-hmm. happy, feeling calm and alive, but then also going through a period of of a real sadness yeah. That feels like it is emerging from within their bodies that they can't put words to, you know. Yeah. They can't date it or give it a mm-hmm. story, uh, which is kind of um, frustrating in in our culture. I mean, the way we live, which is that we should at least be able to talk about something in, in right. order to put it away. Is is that uh, is that a That's manifestation what of what you're talking about? I, it is. Um, I believe culturally we're addicted to our tension. We use it, and this goes back to OCD. This is why I had obsessive compulsive disorder. We're addicted to our tension, and we use it as a way to control our big feelings. So if I can put a block of energy around me, I don't have to deal with my rage or my fear. And with OCD, it's exactly what I was doing. I couldn't deal with the bigger feelings. My feelings were, um, because of the chaos in, in my world, I was scared, I was angry, I was fearful. And I had to create order and control in order to not deal with those bigger emotions. You, you did something, in fact, but mm-hmm. in fact, you weren't dealing with that. You weren't doing anything mm-hmm. with that. 
And so that I could feel the anxiety arise. So I came up with interesting tools to deal with the anxiety. And this mm-hmm. is what most people in our culture do. And then when it doesn't work, they use drugs, sex, alcohol, power, ca- caffeine, food, um, anything to self-regulate or numb out. And in the practice of yoga, when you're releasing the tension organically through the practice of asana day in and day out, the emotions that are embedded in our cellular tissue begin to arise. So even though everything in your life might be wonderful, might be great, these are all, it's old information, Mm -hmm. limited beliefs, feelings that are coming up to the surface. And that's the miracle of yoga. If people are strong enough to hang in there and be willing, yep, you can be willing to become liberated. And you learn that by harboring these, these emotions it's been a way, it's been a survival skill. And yoga is asking us to take the band-aid off the wound, look at our, atten- our attachment to the tension, what it has meant, why we have used it to sabotage our life or experience, and be willing to heal it through a spiritual practice. Um, you know, I, just a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Eckhart Tolle, and he has this phrase of the pain body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually talked to him about a phrase of Matthew Sanford, uh, another great yoga teacher, you know, body memory. <clears throat> yeah. um, I mean, I think the pain body, what you just described is very much what Eckhart Tolle talks about, are, are yeah. the old emotions that in fact are like an entity that resides mm-hmm. in us. But, you know, he's, again, really talking about um, gaining control of our thoughts, um, becoming mm-hmm. conscious of that. Um, you're really describing yoga as a physical practice for releasing that. Mm-hmm. Although that's just one step. People mm-hmm. get addicted to just the release. Mm-hmm. But again, it's the bandit on the wound. You've got to go to the source. How did the tension get there in the first place? For my first, my first four years of yoga was all about using asana as a way when, what to do you, move When you the say tension. asana, is, is, what, how do you define uh, asana? Is just asana are the movements okay. that you do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the uh, the routine, the choreographed routine. It means the um, it's to seat or it's the poses. Mm-hmm. So, I would use the the class as a way to push through the tension without being willing to look at what was underneath it. That was the transformative and the scariest, scariest part of the practice of yoga when I was being asked to say, okay, sweetheart, enough's enough. How did it get there and what are you going to do now to uh, reconcile it with love, with truth, not with fear? Um, And that's where my real healing came. So let's talk about some of the words that you use in the context of yoga that in fact are are spiritual words and what you mean Mm -hmm. by them. And I think that's what you're you're starting to talk about there, like grace. You talk mm-hmm. about the, invoking the energy of grace mm-hmm. in a yoga practice. Oh. What is? I don't think that would make sense to many people. Um, I think that there's a lot of ways. I think first I need to dis- define my relationship with God. Um, I talk about God all the time in class, and I'm pretty, um, I'm pretty confident in my relationship with God, and therefore I'm comfortable using the word. But when I define spirit, it's that which which exists within that's of truth and love. So it doesn't mean if it doesn't matter to me if the iconic energy around your God, your God of your own understanding is Jesus Christ or your higher power or the creative consciousness. You can even be an atheist and have a very, very strong spiritual life if you believe in truth and love. And so that's when I refer to grace or to spirit or to God, I'm talking of truth and love. Okay. And 
that's been my relationship. Um, because I wasn't raised with God and God became patriarchal, I denied that word, used every other word except the God word. And then I realized that I was empowering, continuing to empower this negativity and I needed mm. to reclaim that word. And um, I you, use it. You were kind I, of giving the, the, as you said, the cultural dogma more mm-hmm. weight than you, you were kind of handing, handing the word over to, to that. Precisely. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to do that anymore. I just, spirituality is so unique and individual and it, it's really an art. I've, I see yoga as an art. I see spirit as an art, meaning that it's a creative expression of the self and um, creativity or rather art evolves and grows as the individual evolves and grows. So as I mature on my path, my art is going to become more sophisticated or abstract or interesting or mundane. Mm. Um, but it's mine. And it's the same way I look at my relationship with God. Everything I already need to know exists within my own heart. We're born with all that innate information. And life, karma, fear, all of that just clouds that inner knowing. And we spend the rest of our life simply peeling back the layers to reveal the light that's always been there. And so I surround myself with people who remind me of what I already know. And like that aha moment I had in yoga, it's not that the teacher said anything that was so profound. She just reminded me. And in that moment, I remembered. Mm -hmm. And that awakening happened. And that's how I feel that each and every human being on this planet is is functioning in a state of um, spiritual denial. And we are just remembering that essence. But it's scary because it means we have to take responsibility for the whole of our life. And we can't live in a herd mentality. So by empowering some of these words, it meant that I was really giving power over to these different dogmas, and I just didn't want to do it. It's like, I'll define what God is for me Mm -hmm. and also create space so that other people can define the God within them and stay really open that how it looks today for me at 41 is going to be very different than how it looks when I'm 61. And I'm open to that transformational opportunity. And so, I mean, again, when and this is, I kind of, I think of um, the same theme. When you say that the heart of the practice of yoga is love, you know, what do you what do you mean by that? Yeah. How can <laughs> love be the heart of this practice of? I of think it's a series part- of physical poses, breathing. It, That's the question. Because it comes down to this for me: um, you can't get to God through your head, at least in my experience. I'm, I might come back in 20 years and say, you know, remember that whatever thing I was saying at 41? <laughs> I was totally wrong. Um, but how I've experienced it is that you can't get to God through your head because you're, you're, um, it's determined by your five senses. So therefore, we're limited to what we know, what we see, what we've experienced here on earth. For me, I've only been able to get to God through my heart, not through what I know, but to what I feel, because feelings lead to surrender. And surrender allows you to, to step into that unknown, unknown state where there's a different level of acceptance to what is rather than what you're choosing it to be. And so for me, you release the tension. It opens you up to feelings. Feelings connect you to surrender. And suddenly you're hearing with a new ear, not from your head, but from your heart. So that's the connection that I make on a physical level. You move through the body to connect to the feelings so that you can open yourself up to a broader perception that moves beyond human interpretation, but to spiritual perception, which is infinite and limitless. It's interesting, you know, um, there's, again, another one of these articles talking by journalists talking about this new 
interest in yoga and and the, somebody was quoted this is an article in the New York Times that says you just can't do all those prostrations without it doing something to you and um the the truth is I, um as you you know you're alluding to this without saying it directly but i think you know western religion western christianity in particular the kind of protestant christianity that has been so formative in american culture is very much a head trip i mean really got away from the involvement of the body and yeah. it's not just yoga i mean i'm talking to people who are pentecostal christians and young mm-hmm. conservative jews uh muslims who are integrating the body more and more into prayer and worship and experiencing that to be, you know, not just about worship, but uh, but to um, fulfill something that is absolutely basic and essential about being human. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's inevitable. It's beautiful <laughs> to me. It's, you know, what we're taught in yoga is there's no separation between the mind and the body and the spirit, that everything is interdependent upon the whole. And there's such, especially in our culture, there's so much uh, denial about our body because we often get so fixated on uh, the way that it looks. Yeah. If we're not comfortable with the way that it looks, we deny it, shame it, or uh, we try to it. perfect it. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, another aspect, and I'll get into this a little later, is actually using your body to pray. Yeah, uh, I want to talk huge, about that. Yeah. Well, well talk you know, to uh, me about that because that a body prayer or something you do. Yeah. Well, again, it's. Uh, it all connects ultimately back to service, uh, which is also, you know, kind of the evolution of the work that I've done. Mm-hmm. But um, using your pr- body to pray, you know, once I trust that if I do my yoga practice, I'm going to get stronger and more flexible. I know that's going to happen. It's just inevitable. If I do my practice correctly, if I stay in alignment, if I don't push, if I don't force, then my body will organically open in time. Uh, I know that if I breathe deeply, I'll oxygenate my body. I'll, it has an influence on my nervous system. These things are fixed and I know to be true. But I also recognize that it's a mystical practice. And you can use your body as an expression of your devotion. So the way that you place your hands, the ways that you step a foot forward or back, everything is done with an off, as an offering. I offer the movements to someone I love or to the healing of the planet. My body is not uh, temporal. It's not uh, permanent. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, energy moves through me. It expresses from me. And so if I'm moving from a state of love and my heart is open to that connection between myself and another person or myself and the universe, then as I draw spirit in, I can then offer spirit out. And so it becomes an active form of uh, of prayer of meditation, of grace, I become a conduit for energy. And at the same time, I offer that energy out there. So it doesn't matter if I practice 15 minutes or two hours. It becomes about the attitude, not the application. Mm -hmm. I know that I've done my work. That's how I feel in my heart, that I've aligned my heart and my will with God's heart and will. And I serve something greater than just my physical body, even though I know I'm still getting incredible benefits. You know, I watched um, a video in which you demonstrated body prayer. I think it was at this great San Francisco yoga conference. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was quite amazing to watch. You went through a sequence of poses, which are which are in many practices of of that kind of vinyasa flow yoga. but you did it at this prayerful pace, and there was it was as though every breath and every movement um, 
was so incredibly full of intention mm-hmm. and there was a grace to it that was kind of transcendent. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, you don't have to be strong or flexible to be graceful. Mm-hmm. And when you're offering your practice as a gift, um, as I was in that particular, when you were watching that DVD, mm-hmm. it was as I do often, I was offering to my dad who's, who's very ill. And so when I have an intention behind what I'm doing, then it becomes so fluid because if I fall out of a pose, I'm not going to swear. I'm not going to get disappointed or frustrated. I'm going to realize that this is my offering, and I don't want to offer that energy to my father. I only want to offer him my love. And so I let my body reflect that. And even if I fall out of a pose, it just becomes a part of the experience, not better or worse. Mm-hmm. It's just just is. And when you link the, my, the body with the breath, when you're, my focus is solely on getting the pose to embrace the breath that I'm, I'm actual, actualizing, then the practice, it's almost in slow motion. Right. Um, it has a sense of effortlessness. When people can connect to that, it takes the pressure off of trying to do it perfectly. It just becomes a real expression of their own heart. Sometimes it's graceful and elegant. Other times it's kind of funky and abstract. But it's authentic to who the person is. It's Mm -hmm. their own poetry. So I think someone might be listening to this and might say, well, this is lovely and it's sweet and it's, it's all good, but the world is a complicated, dark place. And in fact... In the way you talk about yoga and also in, in how you, as you say, take it off the mat. I mean, you, you call it a fierce journey. And I, I want to also talk about that, that mm-hmm. aspect of what yoga has taught you. Um, sure, happily. You know, it's, I'm, I'm a really unlikely person to be doing yoga. Like I said, I was brought up in a, a, a fairly blue-collar environment. I'm not an educated woman. Um, I've very independent and buying into all the spiritual um, fluffiness is, is ne- has never, ever been anything that I would have predicted would have happened to my life. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I just never saw it coming. And why it's I'm so attracted to it is because it's anything but fluffy. It's yeah, I was going to but... say, I don't think the way you do it or talk about <laughs> oh. it is fluffy. It's put me right up. What it taught me, not not right away, it took me a while. Once the emotions came up, was that I realized that to really understand what love is and to understand this thing that they call the light, you also have to understand the opposite. You have to understand and embrace the power of the shadow, what love is not. And the shadow is also considered the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, I hesitate to use that phrase. The darkness within us, right? Yes, mm-hmm. and it is within us. And and that's the beautiful part because if it's in me, it's, in, it's also in you. And if I can understand it in me, then I can also witness it and recognize it within you without judging it. I will only judge your shadow if I'm judging my own. And how does and yoga make that possible or trigger that? It's the emotional part of it. When emotions start to arise, you mm-hmm. start to – it's like a mirror – I start to to first experience my uncomfortableness to the emotion. And then I start to re- to witness. If you have a good teacher and can guide you through this, I start to witness my attachment to it or um, the story I tell myself. And I start to spin out within that story. Um, like I said, addic- addic- tension is addictive. Um, and 
the shadow parts of the human experience are as well. But we tend to deny it. We tend to say the shadow is bad. It's wrong. We shouldn't go there. So we shut it down. When we say the shadow, are we talking about the things about ourselves we don't like? Are we talking about things we don't, we haven't done well? Are we talking about real vices? All of that? All of it. Mm -hmm. All of it. Um, My rage. It depends on the judgment to it. My rage can be my shadow, but it can also be my light if it provides information for transformation. Mm -hmm. So it depends on my perception. But jealousy, obsession, um, uh, inappropriate sexual behavior, drugs, alcohol, uh, war, power, anything that's being done from an egoistic place can be considered the shadow aspect of the human experience. One that we see is that's bad. When we're looking in yoga, no separation. Everything is connected. When we start to really understand this, then we start to see that if God is in love and if God is in grace and if God is in the children and all this stuff that we, we want to label, we also have to say that, well, there is no separation and therefore God must also be in the rage and the fear and the sadness and in all of the experiences of our life. Um, because if we don't embrace that, then what we're saying is that there is an other, that there is a disconnect. Um, what I learned along the way, and what I'm, rather I should say I'm learning it more and more, is that everything that's happening on a planetary level, on a global level, the war and the violence and the terrorism, the oppression, Everything is a manifestation of our collective thoughts. Nothing is being done to us that we are not a part of. And so very often in a classroom, I'll ask people, who here wants to see the end of war? You know, of course, everyone's going to raise their hand. Who here wants peace? They'll raise their hand. Um, Who here wants happiness and abundance for all? And, you know, everyone is in agreement. But then I'll ask the same question and I'll say, well, what about your ex-husband or your (laughs) ex-wife? And the room, they start to laugh because, um, you know, Because in theory, it's a great idea. But when you start to individualize it, you have to say, and I ask myself this question all the time, where am I living in interpersonal war? Mm -hmm. Where am I creating some sort of psychic terrorism between me and another person Mm -hmm. um, or my own form of oppression? And if I'm not dealing with that which is within me that's disconnected from each other and then therefore God, then I'm a part of this problem. And I don't want to be a part of the problem. So I need to go into myself and see where are my shadows Where am I not seeing that there is a bigger picture, a mystical picture at play? Mm -hmm. We can perceive things as bad or we can perceive things as opportunities. Right. You say our work is not to want experiences to change. And I would say this is very reflective of of Buddhist teaching, for example, not to want experiences to change, but to pray for a shift of perspective. Why does that make all the difference? Um, And I say this, you know... I have the ability to articulate information, but I never want to mislead people into thinking that I live this way all the time. <laughs> I I struggle with this, especially doing work in developing countries, which is what, what my where my heart is. Mm-hmm. Um, what I pray for, and I struggle with this every day, is I ask God, do not take this experience away, but give me the strength to perceive this experience differently. And these are my prayers. Life happens People die. People get AIDS. People that you love get very, very ill, like my own dad. And that's life. It's a bummer. And on a very human level, I wish it could be different. But on a spiritual level, that's just how it goes down. And we can suffer 
by trying to make it different and trying to will our um, perception into uh, uh, trying to understand it or get it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or we can ask spirit to give us the strength to view an experience in a way that can be more empowering to the whole. And that requires such an incredible amount of individual strength to be willing to let go of what our tribe, our family says, this is bad, this is wrong, this is right, and this is good. And we buy into those beliefs. When you're perceiving experience differently, what I have to do is say, God is in all the moments, the light and the dark. This is a moment that has been co-created because obviously there is something within this that has been keeping me from spirit. And the fact that it's been delivered to me gives me the opportunity to either step into love or to step into fear. It's my choice. Give me the strength so that I can move towards love. And if I can't, help me to understand the purposefulness of my fear. And it's, I I say it as though it's easy, Mm -hmm. but it's probably the hardest thing ever. Um, But I know in my own soul that this is the way that I want to work. And, you know, in, in Christian theology, there's this, this term theodicy, this, this age-old question. You know, if, as you say, God is not only, God is in everything, uh, or God is behind everything, um, then how can this be a good God? Because many bad things happen. And, and I also find, um, you know, I just want to push you on this, because when you say, you know, mm-hmm that everything happens, and you're not the only person saying this, in yeah. in order for us, you know, every moment, however terrible, gives us an opportunity to move closer to transformation. But then, you know, for example, you're working with this organization, Children of the Night, mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, which is pulling 11 to 17-year-olds, boys and girls who become prostitutes, yeah. you know, off the streets. And, I mean, can you say to them... Um, well, this is for your transformation. This is an opportunity. I or wouldn't can say you that lo- too. Can you look at them and, I, and believe that? That's. I have to believe it. Otherwise, I couldn't do my work. Uh, it's my dharma to serve their karma. And it's not for me to say to an 11-year-old kid, everything yeah, happens right. the way it's supposed to in order for your soul to transform. Mm-hmm. But if I don't believe it in my own heart, then it's very difficult for me to show up and dignify the human experience and empower their experience. Um, again, it's about... It life happens. That's just how it goes down. But what are we going to do? One life does happen to empower it rather than to stay victimized by it for the mm-hmm. rest of our life. And, um, you know, I struggle with this working with children because that's, uh, you know, my life is I'm surrounded by adolescent prostitutes and uh, both here in the U.S. and in developing countries. I've seen levels of abuse that are actually absolutely unimaginable. And every single time my spiritual practice comes is in question because I have to show up and say to myself dignify the human experience with love and have no attachment to the end results well I have a lot of attachment to the end result Mm -hmm. I want to see the the end of exploitation Mm -hmm. I get very angry at pimps and at um the men who have sex with children uh adult men who exploit children on this level I have a very difficult time seeing the God within their own soul. And so I have to take some very deep breaths and try to remember that there is a bigger picture at, the, at play that I may have no clue what it is. I don't know what karma is being burnt. I don't know what lessons need to be learned. But I do believe 
that we are all here for a single singular purpose and that is to learn what love is and there's a certain journey that we have to go through to find out what that is mm-hmm. and it could take lifetimes and all I do know that it's intolerable for me to sit back and just allow life to happen without stepping in and offering an opportunity to transform a ne- negative experience into one that is transformative. Um, so working with children, again, it's all the mystery. And I can only, I happen, I, I tend to be a storyteller, so I, I pull the story back to myself right. in that um, I can only equate it to what I've learned. When I went through my own journey, physical, on the physical level, releasing tension, on the emotional level, understanding what the atten- what the tension was, to the understanding that these events have happened. Now what am I going to do with it? Mm-hmm. Am I going to continue pointing the finger back to my life and saying, you did this to me, and therefore I get to spend the rest of my life in inappropriate relationships, afraid of the world because of what you did? Or can I say, like, no, that was done. Here's how it disconnected me to spirit. Here's how I can reclaim this, and now look what I get to do with it, not in spite of the experience, but because of it. And suddenly, this thing that was so bad actually became a gift, and that gift not only changes my heart, but maybe can impact someone else's. So therefore, can it really be bad? Um, I only can stand in the moment of it, and for me, say, I wish certain things didn't happen to me in my life, but I'm very grateful because of what I learned along the way and what I can share as a result. You also, in that practice where you, of body prayer, I think it was there, you, you talked about, or maybe it was just in the vinyasa practice, you, you talked about, um, let me just look at my notes, about being, uh, yeah, you talked about um, Thinking about like dedicating your practice and that and channeling that energy that you experience and tap into and take in and release in yoga, even towards the people who have, you know, not just towards the people you love and the things you're grateful for, but the people you're not grateful for, yeah. <laughs> right? The, the people who have hurt you. I um, have to. And what Otherwise... happens when you do that? I mean, what... What, what? Part of me gets irritated, but i that's just my ego. That's the part of me that just doesn't know better. But my heart opens. I, ha- I have to be praying for our leaders. Otherwise, if I don't, I'm part of the problem. Our leaders are our teachers. The people who have hurt or harmed me were also my teachers. They provided fierce lessons that brought me closer to myself and then therefore God and also taught me about life. Um, it's on an ego level, on a human level, it's very, very difficult but on a spiritual level, we are all God. We are all connected. We are all one. And I have to look at the people who I've enter- spiritually called into my life. Why? What karma were we burning out together? What did we have to teach each other? And how can it have turned my life into actually something that's been very positive? Mm. Um, I always pray for the people who have hurt and harmed me. And just when I think I've forgiven them, I forgive them again. Um, because always that energy will rear its its head, and I have to make sure that I'm constantly keeping myself clean. Otherwise, I'm holding on to that shadow of anger, and the inability to forgive, they say, is a poison you take hoping someone else will die. And um, again, it keeps us disconnected from God. 
Hmm. You know, this other yoga teacher, Matthew Sanford, said something so intriguing that the more grounded we are in our bodies, the more loving Mm -hmm. and compassionate we'll be towards all of life. I don't think in this culture that intuitively makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. It's also something you're describing here. I mean, how do you explain that? Or have you, have you thought about why that's true? Uh, this, the world is in conflict and in chaos and crisis, and it's easy for us to, to run away. You know, it's, it's interesting. I'm doing a project right now at the DNC next week, um, creating an alternative lounge with Ariana Huffington to bring yoga and um, health and wellness and... Uh, sustainable organic food into the DNC. Right. And, I mean, it's bringing yoga into a very unlikely environment that, Mm -hmm. you know, these are the people who are making decisions on our behalf. And what we want to try to create is an environment that centers and grounds and gets them in their body. And what I've been learning the last uh, month since I've been working in this environment is how many people are motivated by their stress, their fear, their panic, and they use that as a way to feed um, and to stimulate them forward. It's an addiction. And it rides on this level of frenetic panic. They're not in their bodies. And I can feel what it does to me when I'm in conversation with these people. It's very easy to lose your focus, to get spun out. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I watch too many people making that disconnection. They're not in their bodies. They're staying in their heads. They're staying... Um, uh, certainly not in their hearts, because once they're segregated, then it's impossible to to stay in that holistic vibe. So getting into your body is an instrumental way of making this broader connection to the world in which we live. Um, we have to stay grounded. We have to remember our roots in order to fly. It's um, And our it's like roots any... are these physical bodies that we walk around in. Yeah, well, physical and energetic. And energetic, okay. Yeah, Mm -hmm. there's no, again, there's no separation. But we have to take care of this. I mean, this is our our, our temple, Hmm. and we have to maintain it and take care of it. We have to eat well and sustain it, nurture it and support it. It's an aspect of God. It gets us from point A to point B. It allows us to touch each other, to kiss each other, to whisper in each other's ears. And if we're out of our bodies, it's very hard for us to connect um, and to maintain healthy, both physical as well as energetic relationships. I want to ask you if um, these experiences of yours, these insights, and especially the work you do with um, child prostitutes, um, also youth with AIDS you've worked with, um, mm-hmm. there's also this dark, this shadow side of of this observation that mind, body, and spirit are linked and of, of what you just talked about, that when we're grounded in our bodies, we can... We can be connected, and what I'm talking what I'm talking about is um, something that I don't think we reflect on very much in our culture. But um, we know that when there is sexual violence, when there is rape, or you know, when there's sexual abuse, or when children get pulled into these into prostitution, it's not just bodies that suffer; it's the mm-hmm. soul. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, that's that's a huge observation to make. Um, mm-hmm that I don't think we ponder it's 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 the downside but it's a proof of the mind body spirit connection yeah. um what have, what has I mean I think you've been speaking to, to that all the time but what have, what has how has yoga helped you um understand that more deeply 
Well, again, it goes back into my own history, and it, it all lines, you know, it's all interdependent and connected, and, and that's where I see the God. Um, my my initial trauma, I'm sure there's been, you know, I came into the world with trauma. Uh, you know, there's karma to be burnt out. But my first experience of um, of betrayal, perhaps, mm-hmm. was molestation at six years old. Mm-hmm. And I'm very public with this. I've talked about this frequently because it's it's led me to where I am today. It's where I find so much gratitude. And I marvel at how one thing can become something else. Um when you're a child, you have no, I had no sense of sexuality, of course, yet I experienced both panic and pleasure. And I didn't know what pleasure was, so I felt ashamed and guilty. And again, this is a, uh, not something I was conscious about. I was right. very aware of the molestation, but I wasn't as conscious of the intricacies that I'm sharing with you. Right, right. That came later. But I'm, I, when I think about it, um, I was very aware of that something was happening that I was I knew had to be wrong, but at the same time there was a sense of pleasure associated with it that was overwhelming, power even, and because I didn't have the words to deal with the situation, um, and I certainly didn't have the physical power, I, it was my first experience of dissociation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I literally mm-hmm. floated above the experience and watched it happen as though it was happening to someone else, um, and it be, was my first. Um, experience of survival. And so developing OCD was a way to always get back in my body. I see. Um, so it was a way to maintain control so that I can stay in my body. When anxiety would occur, I would start to disappear. I would start to separate from myself. It was the way I dealt with stress. Mm-hmm. So to keep myself in control and in my body, I would do patterns. It had to be even. Um, everything had to be in order. And and I, I th- the human human experience is amazing. I mean, my soul was saying, come on, kids, stay in your body um, when I was trying to disappear. Hmm. And so yoga then got me back in my body. How did it that connected- come out? I mean, in yoga, was there, were there particular moments? You know, was there a time when you became aware that you were releasing that or tapping into it through the yeah. yoga? Um, yeah. Well, it also was not just yoga. I was in therapy. Yeah. So it was in alignment. I chose to do both at the same time. Mm-hmm. So as I would come and go into a yoga class, um, I would get anxious and nervous. And, you know, when the feelings would come up in my practice, I would run away like most people do in their normal life. I would start to fantasize or think about what I wanted to buy when class was over or <laughs> yeah. um, anything to get me away from, like, this uncomfortableness. Hmm. And that's why I kept remembering the teacher would say, breathe and everything changes, breathe and everything changes. And... I would breathe and the thoughts would start to slow down and then these emotions would come up, but the emotions scared me. Yeah. Um, they were uh, sad and scary and, and, and angry and uh, it was the energy of, that, of the molestation was coming up and out and I didn't know how to deal with it. So in therapy, I was able to talk about the feelings and in a safe environment start to allow space to understand um, and heal the, these emotions, because I thought that they were bad, but they weren't. They were normal. You deny the shadow, it comes out in other ways. Right. So it gave me an, um, an environment to deal with these bigger feelings. And then when the emotions would come up in a classroom, the sensation, I would start to indulge it a little bit, knowing that I was fine, that I wasn't going to go running knowing out of the room that it couldn't screaming. hurt you again, right? No, that yeah. it was just old energy. Let it go, breathe through it, mm-hmm. feel it, grieve it, and connect to it. 
um, give it a voice, um, let it tell its truth the way that the child couldn't tell its truth when it was was being actualized. So again, it's all connected, mind, body, spirit. I didn't know my body had all this in me. No wonder I was so angry and enraged. And thank God I had a a tool like OCD to keep me Hmm. in the world so that I wasn't acting out, which would have been a, a, a very normal reaction. And it also makes perfect sense why I would work with the children that I work with. Right. I was going to um, say, I mean, telling that story, then I understand um, you've created something which you call off the mat into the world. Um, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the projects you're working on and that you're working on before this um, have to do with children. The, we mentioned Children of the Night, the Cambodian Children's Fund, um, Youth AIDS. Uh, t- t- tell me, how did you, though come to really become activist in that way? Because, I mean, you have, I know that in, even in, say, the yoga studio I go to here, there there are karma yoga projects, but I think that this Mm -hmm. is a discussion within, you talk about the yoga community, which is actually quite large now. We're talking, I don't know, 20 million people. Um, But in fact, it's really um, not, it's not necessarily a connected network. Um, and I know that that's a discussion people have. Um, yeah. So talk to me about how that evolution uh, took place in you and for you. Well, when I was young, I, was, I started getting involved in activism uh, around AIDS uh, when I was 19. But I was a horrible activist. I was, the, you know, I was on the <laughs> soapbox with a megaphone and a finger up and telling everyone else how to live their life. Right. Because I hadn't dealt with my rage. So being an activist was a, an outlet for me uh, and not an appropriate one. Uh, it's how many, many activists are out there. They're really acting out from their own emotions, uh, and um, it's not an effective way to, to, to create healing. So I got out of activism and really spent a lot of my years through yoga and through the mystical practice just healing and trying to understand and, and coming to terms with the way that I believe spirit operates at this time. And something had happened in 1999 where abundance came into my life. Um, and I'm, t- I'm telling this story because I don't want it to seem like I just decided that I was going to go out into the world and serve and St. Sean was going to go and save the children. It wasn't okay. like that. Mm-hmm. It was abundance came in where I, I made a little bit of money and I have uh, this, I don't believe that there's a lack, there's any lack in the universe. I believe there's nothing but abundance. It's just opening yourself up to that channel. So when abundance comes in, to keep the flow of energy, you have to give back. So my getting involved in service in 1999 was really just a, um, it was just out of that thought, like, well, something came in, I got to give back, and that's just how it goes. So I thought, well, you know, uh, my skill is yoga, and, you know, I can, I know, uh, you know, there's an at-risk community out there, and they could probably use a little breathing and some yoga work, so, you know, maybe I'll work <laughs> in the prison system. Right. But... I didn't really want to work around uh, young straight boys. It just didn't feel safe for me at that time. So I researched and I found out about Children of the Night. So I thought, oh, okay, adolescent prostitutes, mostly girls. Oh, they need to get in their body. They need to learn about breathing. This will be great. You know, I can help them to connect. And I laugh at myself when I think about it because God is so amazing that way. You get exactly what you need. It's all yoga because (laughs) I walked in you know, all white and fluffy-headed, and, you know, the girls are are mostly, uh, at this shelter at that time, black and Latina, and a couple of boys, uh, 
you know, a homosexual, all street hustlers. They were defiant, rude, so completely not impressed by, you know, the fabulousness of me. Right. Um, Flicking each other's bras. They like they just could care less. The only reason they did anything was because there were counselors around forcing them to essentially. Hmm. And they were just the the you could just see the darkness on their these kids. And they seemed to me in that moment as um, hopeless. Hmm. That's how I felt. Hmm. And they were I, I left the shelter after just a horrifying experience trying to teach them yoga (laughs) and I went into my car and I was really emotional and I was just thinking these kids are messed up they're never going to get better they're going to go back out into the world as uh, uh, you know as criminals and going on and on and on in my head and it always takes me a while to kind of you know where I always think spirits saying like you done yet you're you're gonna wake up to this yet because I realized that I had just met the part of myself that I had denied, that yeah. I had called into my experience the child in me that had been that is defiant and angry and scared to death mm-hmm. and has absolutely zero tools for healing. And in so fact, had gonna... been sexually abused also. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, I I've, honestly, God is hysterical. And I get the joke really, really late <laughs> always because I got exactly God was saying it's time. It's time. You can't deny this. If you really want to heal and open your heart to love, then you've got to find the places within you that's disconnected from God. And I'm giving you an opportunity. Go back and don't serve these girls. Meet them. Go and and meet you. And that's exactly what happened. I went back to those girls. And the next time I went in, I shared my story. And instead of teaching them anything, we just played and we connected and we laughed and the yoga was a you know a mess to the outside eye <laughs> um it was just what it was was just a bunch of human beings laughing and the more we laughed and giggled and just connected the more they opened to me and the more we realized that we were both alike and it was by learning to love those little girls i learned to love that part of me that i was that i had felt especially the part of me that had received pleasure from the mm-hmm. molestation, mm-hmm. I got to reclaim her and understand um, I understand that little girl and really forgive her and bring her back home again. So I always say, like, who got served? It wasn't those kids. It, it was me. And right. You said, give me got... a junkie and a whore any day of the week. Anything. They're my teachers. <laughs> always. Well, meaning, meaning anyone who can move through the story mm-hmm. and live to tell the tale. Those are my teachers. Tell me, um, did yoga, was yoga eventually helpful? Has it been helpful to them, those kids? To those little girls? Mm-hmm. Um, again, it depends on the little girl. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on their karma. Some, yes. Um, any child who's been severely abused are usually um, very intuitive. Uh, they, A man can walk into the room and within 30 seconds they can figure out just intuitively their, the male's uh or the female's weakness to get sex, drugs, money, food, anything from them to manipulate them. And I always say to the kids, imagine being able to use that same skill because it is, it's an incredible skill Hmm. for good, you know, rather Hmm. than evil, Hmm. rather than taking advantage of a situation. Can you imagine being able to look at a human being and actually have compassion because you can see their shadow? You can see where they have been disconnected. And the reason they can see it is because they can see it in themselves. And um, the more... I was able to heal the parts of me that I was so afraid of. When I meet that little girl or any of those, that population in the world, it doesn't scare me. It doesn't. I, I see like 
They're just a wounded child and they have absolutely no skills. So they're just acting out from that fear. And it's manifesting as ego or power or judgment, but that's not the truth. The truth is that they're love and they just have no, no ability to express it because of their pain. So by healing it in myself allowed me to be in the presence of it hmm. um, so and in a way uh, without the, running away. The connection between yoga and service was as much that it was the yoga that got you there to be present yeah. to that as much as that you brought them yoga and the yoga itself. I mean, it, maybe you planted some seeds, I suppose, that you won't know. I have no idea. It's, that is none of my business. I don't know uh-huh. what their journey is and what they're supposed to learn. I, I don't know how many walls each and every one of us needs to walk into. My job is not to judge a human being, is just to have faith and pray for them, love them, serve them, dignify them, but not think that it should look any differently than it does. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really between them and God. I need to worry about my side of the street. What comes up for me in the face of a challenge? And what can I do to heal my reaction to it? And hope that the children and the people that I'm working with, that they're able to create or rather find grace in their circumstances. And instead of allowing themselves to be continually victimized um, by what life has offered them, what's what has been offered to them through the, their, their particular karmic circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, there's kind of a paradox here. I was having a conversation recently, not, not on air, but in life, <laughs> with mm-hmm. someone who's a, a, a devout practitioner of Zen and Mm, this is a conversation within the, say, especially the Zen Buddhist community as well. Um, whether the 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 real the only real work is on yourself, um, right? I mean, that is kind of the mm-hmm. main focus. As you're saying, it has all these implications for the outside world. But then there's yeah. also this irony that, and this is true for Christians or or uh, you know secular humanists as well. There there is this experience that people have that when they reach out to serve others it's it's they themselves who are enriched right as much you know at least as much as they help anyone else so that service almost has there's almost this selfish aspect of service that if you think about it too hard is a little bit disturbing you know i whatever to me i don't care like if it if it means raising awareness, money, um, someone's uh, life in any capacity. I don't really care what the intention behind it is as long as someone else's life gets transformed because it's all a learning process. I know for a fact that I have been given more than I have actually offered by being of service. Mm -hmm. It's not my intention in doing it. It's just the awareness that I have. I am, I've never been happier with myself and my own life than when I am stepping into someone else's experiencing experience and offering a hand. And I know that that's selfish, but I accept that that's also part of the human experience of my own journey. Um, I think it'll be selfless when I'm enlightened, and I don't see that happening anytime too soon. I'm, I'm <laughs> okay. angling for empowerment. Okay. You know, that's um, my goal. You know, as we've said, there are so many people doing yoga now. There are yoga centers springing up on every street corner in every city and not just yoga centers, but classes and YMCAs. And um, I'm sure you're aware there there is with there within Christian circles, there's there's some resistance to that, some wariness, because there is this sacred aspect to the tradition of yoga, the sacred mm-hmm. history. And and, the, you know, there there is a, some movement to um replace some of the 
the Hindu phrases uh, or the Sanskrit phrases with Christian vocabulary and words. I'm just curious about your how your response to that, how how you think about that. You know, again, I, yoga's been happening for thousands of years, and it, it's certainly a continually evolving practice. I like to think that yoga itself is bigger than any one uh, tradition mm-hmm. and that it has its place in all the different traditions. And if a Christian needs to bring in, I mean, when I go into the Bible Belt, for example, and using prayer in the class, I will always mention Jesus Christ because I want to invoke into the space a sense of the sacred that's going to be familiar and comfortable to the practitioners that I'm working with so that they feel at home and Mm -hmm. they feel welcomed. So I don't really have a problem with it. Um, That's probably not a popular decision uh, or or, um, an opinion, but there's room for yoga and Christianity. There's room for yoga and Judaism. There's room for yoga in all the different traditions. What it comes down to, what you can't take away, is that yoga means we are all one. And if you take away the dogma of every major religion, they're basically saying the exact same thing. <laughs> and so it's fine by me if that's if that's what's going to take uh, these religions to get everyone breathing together, moving together, re- uh, releasing tension together, and being <laughs> okay. more available to authentic prayer, not mm. prayer from your head, but prayer from your heart that's mm. more unified, then uh, I, I, I welcome it. I don't have an issue with it at all. Mm. I might, that might not be a popular opinion, though. Okay. I want to take just a couple minutes, let you breathe, and um, I'm going to ask my colleagues behind the glass if they have any questions, and then we'll just have a, f- a few final questions. This is great. Okay. Thank so you. So I'm going to I'm going to be quiet while I'm listening. Mhm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. Okay. All right. Um, you know, you have you've used a frame a few a phrase a few times and I just want to Make sure I know what you I mean when you say burning the karma. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, like I said, everyone comes into this world to there's certain we're here to learn what love is, like I said before, and there's certain experiences that we have to go through um, to really be able to evolve to that consciousness. And things happen that might seem um, incomprehensible to the human uh, to human perception, yet maybe there are certain things that we need to understand because we haven't been able to see the God in it. Um, For example, and again, this is something that I would never share with with a child, but I look in my own life. Injustice is a huge thing for me. I have a lot of judgment around injustice. I always have. And I don't know what may have happened to me in another lifetime that has provoked such rage around injustice. So it makes sense that in this lifetime that A, an injustice happened to me, 
that I'm being forced to have to look at the perpetrator and understand that for him to have behaved the way that he behaved, a certain injustice must have happened to him. Hmm. That this is a, a behavior that had to get played out in order to heal. And all of us were burning karma. All of us have had to play out what has happened in this and other lifetimes so that we see both the light aspect and the shadow aspect to bring us into a more neutral and therefore spiritual place with it. So things happen as they are supposed to. We co-create exactly what we need so that we can learn certain lessons. You can't be abandoned unless there's a part of you that believes that that's true. So somehow, somewhere along the way, experience happened that where I was up against some sort of an abandonment. And again, I've brought it into this lifetime and I will call in certain teachers that will hold that mirror up to me. I can either continue to buy into it or I can heal from it. Hmm. So I do. It's very hard for me to say this because I, I look at like, for example, being just coming back from Cambodia and working with so many, um, uh, so many abused children and exploited children. And there's a real Uh, abandonment there also that's not even the kind uh, that you're talking about that can be interpreted, but, yeah. And it's genocide. I mean, it's so many different levels, but you have to... So I have to hold in my heart. There was karma at play in this that doesn't make it justified or right, but there is something mystically bigger at play that I do have to see. What are these children, these, these people, supposed to be learning And can I create an environment to give them uh, support so that they can see the bigger picture rather than live their life victimized so then they have to play it out again and again and again and again? So again, that's that idea from earlier that that you pray not to change reality, which is given, mm -hmm. but but for a shift in perspective. And you try... you're, you're, You're dealing with terrible realities that you can't change. But you're mm-hmm. trying to create conditions in which there can be a shift in perspective for the people who yes. are suffering there. Mm-hmm. And, and God will always give you opportunities to which show, that hold a mirror up to your own shadow. Mm-hmm. It just happened to me in, um, when I was in Cambodia. Uh, I threw off the mat into the world. I'm doing a big project coming up in February. And I brought a small group out with me to Cambodia because I had never been in a developing country with a group of people before where I had to where I was going to be responsible for, uh, not for their experience or feelings, but I was going to be the leader, essentially. And people were going to be looking to me uh, as certain feelings come up to be able to help support it or interpret it. So I needed to see people's reactions to um, to injustice, to hmm. uh, uh, pain and suffering, to exploitation. So I brought a, a small group with me with varying different personalities And I needed to observe, A, their triggers and my trigger to their trigger. And what was amazing to me was the one that comes up for me the most was when people would say to me, how come they're not doing this different? Why isn't the government doing something different? Why isn't Mm -hmm. the person, the leader of the NGO doing A, B, or C? And they weren't solution-oriented. When it was coming from a sense of self-righteousness or uh, a finger-pointing, it triggers something in me that is so, I, I don't know what it is, but I get so angry. And it. I thought, well, thank you, God, so much for one more time providing me with an opportunity to sh- hold that mirror up to, to where I lose my ability to be compassionate. 
I watched myself react to that person. I got mad at that person. Thank God I, I grew up with this person, so I was able to have dialogue with them. Um, but I thought, of course, I'm always going to call that person in because that's the judger that's still in me. Hmm. And so it's karma that I have to burn out and that I have to keep playing again and again until I can look at that person and say, the reason that they are pointing the finger and wanting someone to change their experience is because they can't handle the big feelings that are coming up hmm. and they're simply scared to death and they don't know how to take responsibility. My weakness comes from not being able to identify that. And I want them to be different so that I don't have to be uncomfortable. <laughs> and so... <laughs> right. It's this great, uh, it's the, uh, everything is this great mirror. So it's like, all right, God, thank you. Cause this is, I, I need to learn how to be patient and how mm. to have compassion. And because of my karma and my life, that's my issue. Just, um, not taking responsibility and, uh, injustice becomes big triggers for me. How do you think your yoga practice and your spirituality that has flows from yoga and your understanding the understanding that you bring to all of this um, has affected your experience of living with your father's cancer? Oh, hugely. Um, you know, the biggest thing that I've learned from my dad having cancer is that this is, he's having his experience of cancer and I'm having my experience of his cancer mm -hmm. and they're not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I tried to get my dad to get it that he had to do, if you did, ate this and you did this and, and tried this, then, then you, you'll, you, you have an opportunity to get better. And it hasn't been his way. He's made other choices that have been not in parallel with what I would have done. And by him not doing what I want makes me very uncomfortable because I'm afraid that if I don't control this, he's going to die. Mm -hmm. And again, it goes way back to my issues. And, um, of trying to control a situation and feeling responsible ultimately for someone else's death. And I've had to let my dad have his own experience and love him and trust him and um, have faith in the process and enjoy what amazing stuff has come from this, which is a, certainly a more intimate and deeper relationship with my whole family hmm. um, as a result. And this is exactly what my father prayed for. I know that somewhere along the way my father prayed to become a more open and integrated human being. I don't think he meant, you know, give me cancer. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that was what he called. He thought he was going to call in, but that's life. He did, and he has a choice. He can either be a victim by this or he can become, which he has, an even greater father than he was before. Mm -hmm. And so if my father passes as a result of the cancer, which inevitably um, I, I, I suspect he will, um, the gift that has been given is uh, certainly... Uh, outweighs the, the the pain and the suffering that it has cost. And do you think he so, would see it that way as well? Would he, would he say that as uh, well? If my dad was on the call right now, yeah. he would say, cancer sucks. <laughs> um, he, my dad has an amazing sense of humor around cancer. And, uh, I, my dad's also a yoga teacher. Oh. Uh, he has a much more practical perspective than I do uh, about it. But... I would. He would never deny me my perception. Right. You're also saying you get to have that perception. That's your yeah, perception. He uh -huh. That's mine. He wouldn't deny it, but he would have to say that he has. Uh, he has certainly learned a lot. But given the choice, mm -hmm. he would have preferred that this wasn't his experience. <laughs> and uh, and given the choice, I would have preferred that this wasn't ours. But right. The thing is, it was. So now, what are we going to do with it? And mm -hmm. that's what yoga has taught me. Hmm. All right. We have to finish. I just realized we've gone an hour and a half. It's been great, uh -huh. and it's gone so quickly. I think I want to ask you this. Um, we talked in the beginning about 
you know, you, you had something happened when you first did yoga, but then it was really a couple of years before you would say you, you, you grasped how transformative this could be for you and and that it is a progressive, um, there's a lot of learning that happens the longer you do the practice and the more you do the practice, it's different for every individual. I just wonder, you know, if there are breakthroughs or things you've learned Lately, how long have you been doing yoga now? About 20 years? 22, 22 years. 22 years. You know, mm-hmm. are, are, there, are there things you've learned this year or last year that, you know, have widened your perspective on yoga as a spiritual practice or what it has to teach you in life that even still take you by surprise? All the time. Um, it probably was around, again, my dad's cancer that there was a... a, a a moment. It's funny today. I'm having the same uh, experience. So I'm. It's the mind body experience. Uh, I have a. I have birds at home where I live, and I was feeding the birds, and my back spasmed, and um, it my back spasmed, and it ex, it locked around my diaphragm, and I started to uh, basically asphyxiate, hmm. and uh, I was able to get out of the out of the atrium, and I thought I for sure I was going to die, hmm. and when I was able to get my breath back, and when the spasm was able to release where I could identify where it was in my body, I realized it was directly over my left kidney, which is the kidney that my father had removed, hmm. and uh, and um, I started to look at the mind-body, what this part of the body relates to. It relates to um, uh, your sense of self, uh, how you, uh, your, your self-confidence, your self-esteem, your ego, and as I would practice and I would connect to the emotion at this part of the body, I realized that part of my sense of self is, has always been being the good girl, always doing the right thing. And when my dad got ill, I took it upon myself to, I'd go from one workshop, fly home to be in the hospital with my father, mm-hmm. watch my father go through his experience of cancer, get on a plane, go someplace else, talk about how everything happens the way it's supposed to in order for your soul to transform without, <laughs> without yeah. processing the fact that I was terrified that my dad was dying. And when my body locked up like that. It was my physical body's way of saying, pay attention. Right. This is not about... Um, it's not about the cancer. This is for you to grow and to learn. And I had to go back to my family and create a better boundary. And I said, I don't think I'm taking care of myself because I was doing everything because I'm, that's just how I operate. Right. It was part of being the good girl. And I had to say, I can't do it this way. We need to do it another way. And so, again, it was that mind-body experience. My body was telling me that there was some emotion that I wasn't reconciling. And so I'm learning from the practice of yoga every single time. Every time I get on the mat, I am humbled by this practice. Um, very often I'm brought to my knees by it, but I have never not been but inspired by its power. Okay. Well, that's great. Um, thank you so much. Um, thank you. I think we need to finish, but I'm so glad we were able to make this happen. And I think we're going to put it on the air in a couple of weeks. We'll let you know exactly how that's happening when we, when we work out our our schedule. I'm glad that Matt put me in touch with you. And I, I would love to come to one of your classes if I'm ever in Los oh. Angeles and you're there too. So I'm going to, I'll watch your website if there's an I opportunity so. for that. I would, yeah. I would love to have you in there. Yeah, I would, would love be very, to be It there. would be fun. Yeah. And good luck with your own practice. Thank you very much. It's a great adventure ahead of me. I know. Yeah, it, okay. It is. Me too. All right. Take care. Blessings right. on your work. Thank you very much. And yours as well. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.